0: Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel
1: Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking.
2: From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia.
0: Hello and welcome to Breaking Banks Asia. Today we have a very special episode for you, so settle in, grab a coffee, as we tell you a story about the collapse of the last wave of neobanks in Australia, and their comeback in the dying months of 2022. The four names you're going to hear a lot are Volt, Zinger, 86400, and Judo Bank, all told through the eyes of a journalist, a regulator, and a once aspiring neobank CEO. It was late 2017 and Australia was heading into a long, hot summer. But the tech bros, the hustlers and the hackers of the country's fintech scene were abandoning their plans of beach and sunbaking. Instead, they were hunkering down in their offices because the banking regulator, APRA, was about to make one of the biggest changes to the country's banking rules in many years. It removed the shackles holding back neobanks and launched Australia's latest digital banking wave.
1: Like it or not, the banking sector is changing, embracing online and moving away from having a physical presence
0: on the street. Now there's a new player in the market and they're promising to
3: shake things up.
0: Then, two years ago, came the first collapse, Zinja, which vaporised $5 million of investments made by its own customers and leaving behind a web of claims and counterclaims about a mysterious UAE investor an almost half-billion-dollar rescue package and a criminal investigation by the regulator. Today, of the first four fintechs to make it through the regulatory gauntlet to get an Australian banking licence, just one is still standing. The regulator believes the experiment has been a success. Industry insiders say the seasoned bankers who helmed some of these companies forgot the very basic rule of how banks make money. Others say the pandemic killed a good thing by choking off customers and capital, which the big banks then took advantage of. And still others say the neobank template, created by the UK's raging success, was never going to translate into Australia's tiny market of just 25 million people. So let's start at the beginning, when the hope and excitement was still gripping the fintech world.
1: I think in the early days, there was a lot of promise and a, and a lot of hype. APRA had come up with these restricted banking licences, which sort of allowed a fast-track way of getting a start in the industry. There were sort of this wave of players that were looking to get involved, including Zinjo, including Vault, and it was sort of a bit of a race to be the, the first one to, to launch.
0: That's Joyce Malakis a senior banking reporter at the Australian newspaper. She was there during the heady early days when the first movers were jostling for position, just after the banking regulator created a restricted banking licence which slashed the amount of capital an entity needed to call itself a bank from $50 million to just three. Joyce, the UK had the likes of Monzo and Revolut, which had fantastic traction and were truly revolutionising banking. I'd love to know who were the key banks and characters you were following in the beginning.
1: Zinger had been around sort of 2016, 17, doing sort of early capital raising rounds. They were really big on marketing. Eric Wilson was out and about everywhere, former NAB executive, and and he teamed up with a couple of people from Macquarie. So they looked to be pretty credible. And then Bolt, obviously, former Barclays and NAB banker there too, Steve Weston, very credible person. Who, you know, really knew the industry, had worked in Australia, had worked in UK, had seen what had happened there in terms of fintechs and neo banking. So it was, it was a pretty exciting time. And then you had 86400 and up, of course, which was in a partnership with Bendigo Bank from day one, which probably, you know, helped it well on its way as well. And then obviously the other one, which is still doing reasonably well, is judo which came up with a a very specialised proposition in business banking. And they, you know, again, two former NAB guys, Joseph used to run the business bank for NAB, the country's largest business bank. So you had credible people talking about doing credible things in terms of let's bring the relationships back to business banking. Vault was actually the first to get one of those restricted banking licences, which probably gave it a bit more kudos than some of the others. Ginger launched first with a prepaid card, which is not a banking product. But yeah, it was an interesting time. It was a very interesting time in those early days. You had almost 20 years of industry experience
0: under your belt by this time. So who did you think was going to be a success?
1: Bolt and Judo both showed a lot of promise and just given... The executives behind them, I knew they were credible people, they'd get credible backers. They knew the banking industry, they knew the technology they needed. They knew where the banks were failing as well, where customers weren't happy. So I, I really sort of thought they'd be success stories. In consumer banking, you had Vault,
0: Zinger, and 86400. Vault would end with the most cutting-edge and innovative mortgage platform in the market. Zinja used equity crowdfunding and cheeky marketing to grab market share quickly. And 86400 was owned by Cuscell, a consortium of banks and mutuals. Judo Bank, on the other hand, was cracking open a long-neglected small business lending niche. Vault was first out of the gate with a restricted banking license in 2018, and quickly followed by Zinja. This licence gave them two years to get their houses in order to become a proper bank or walk away. The following year, both levelled up to a full licence. Judo and 86400 bypassed the restricted level and also became banks 2019. A fifth player, Up, is considered to round out the quintet. But it is not a neo. It only ever piggybacked off the licence owned by its banking parent, Bendigo and Adelaide. As Joyce said, they all looked very credible. But that is not quite how they were perceived by the regulator, APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. Here we turn to Melisande Waterford. She was APRA's General Manager of Regulatory Affairs and Licensing and led the team that created the neobank pathway. In APRA's first ever podcast interview, she says becoming a bank was a steeper learning curve than expected for some of the neos.
4: So what we found was that the applicants were very focused on achieving a licence and weren't necessarily looking forward to the challenges that were going to arise over the course of the next few years as they built their business. And what our experience showed was that getting a licence was really just the first hurdle, the first step on the path to becoming a sustainable bank. There were very unique challenges and risk profiles of new banks when you compared them to the more established banks. And so it was really very important that plans were in place to allow an orderly exit from the market. Uh, When an applicant actually initially approaches us, they are often at a reasonably early stage. We'd like them to be as advanced as possible, but they are still in a build phase for the capital and the resources that they need, and, and we begin the process with them. Most applicants today are wanting to go through the restricted path. There are some that are wanting to go straight to full authorisation, And throughout that journey, there are lots of different hurdles that have to be met. APRA was obviously pretty
0: comfortable with the amount of risk those new banks were posing to consumers and to the banking system. But were there any new risks that you now had to take into consideration?
4: The developments in technology that have opened up some of these possibilities for digital bank entrants, for example, access through an app or no need for traditional physical branch presence, do present some slightly different lenses on risks, but by and large are actually traditional risks, just with a different emphasis. So there's a sort of a trade-off, trade-off there with how much risk you'll let in and what you're willing to protect to encourage innovation or competition into a market.
0: That's an interesting point about the line you draw between competition versus innovation. Australia has 186 banks, according to APRA's Register of Local and Foreign Institutions, and they serve a relatively tiny population of just over 25 million. Notwithstanding Judo Bank, which has clearly found a true underserved niche, how did you expect a handful of digital banks would go enhancing competition?
4: I've always found that people approach the concept of competition differently have different things in their head about what does competition look like what does good competition look like so on one hand you could say it's about numbers i would argue that adding two or three extra banks doesn't necessarily in itself add competition likewise if we had some consolidation that actually may enhance competition if we ended up with a more viable or sustainable or competitive player i think The discussions about competition can be very nuanced. I think there is a lot of competition within the banking sector among the different sectors and the different cohorts. I think that the banking sector is experiencing a lot of non-traditional competitive pressures from entities that can slice off a part of their service without actually requiring a banking licence and thereby conduct business they can attract revenue but without some of the regulatory costs that are associated with being a bank. It is very much more a tech game which obviously has a different set of skills, a different set of costs associated with it but is ultimately something that's easier than establishing branch presences particularly across somewhere like Australia and that does open the door in many ways. I think you could look at
0: what those four or five, if you include up, neobanks achieved and say they certainly put the large incumbents on notice. We were talking before about the challenges facing the neos around banking licenses, but was it the regulatory regime or the capital that was the biggest hurdle?
4: There are industries where startups can make a noticeable impact without having lots of capital but banking is not really one of those. Banking is a very capital-intensive business and attracting capital has to date been the biggest challenge for new entrants and very linked to success in the other challenges that they face, such as customer acquisition. I think it's worth pointing out that the regulatory capital requirements are negligible in comparison with the capital that a bank needs to operationalise a business It has a lot of IT investment, a lot of build, a lot of spend in building up resources to develop products, et cetera. And without being able to do that, it has difficulty attracting customers and further investment. So often people talk about capital and they only think regulatory capital. And I think it's worth pointing out that certainly in the Australian regulatory system, We haven't found that it's the regulatory capital which is the barrier for the new entrants. It's the capital that they need to to build their business.
0: And raise they had to do, and fast, to keep the money-go-round spinning. The NEOs needed to convince investors to give them money for lending products. But to get that money, they needed to show they had customers. To get customers... Zinger, Vault, and 86400 seduced Australians away from their old banks with sky-high interest rates on deposits. To keep paying those rates, they needed to convince investors to give them money. I'll throw some numbers at you. Numbers that tell the story of how much funding was available versus how many customers. Volt raised $212 million over the course of its life. It ended with about 8,000 customers. Zinja secured 205 million and had slightly more than 37,000 customers at the time it collapsed. 86400 raised 34 million dollars from one funding round and had landed about 85,000 customers by the time it was bought out. And Judo has banked 1.8 billion to date and had at least 10,000 customers by the end of 2021. Judo started as a lender, while 86400 launched mortgages a year after it got its banking licence in 2020. But Vault and Zinja were in a much more difficult position.
1: Callum Krull has little hesitation about switching savings accounts. He's willing to try online banks, but just as willing to leave them.
2: When they were just starting to drop the interest rate down, another bank just popped up. It's all, I think it's all about marketing.
1: Callum was banking with Zinja, one of Australia's so called neobanks, but closed his account late last year. Other customers started leaving around the same time. In September last year, Zinja held 485 million in customer deposits. Less than two months later, that amount had almost halved to 252 million. That was after it slashed the interest rate on its savings account three times in six months.
0: Here's Joyce again to explain how they were trying to outrun the rules of banking.
1: Sinja was around even before Vault started making noise. So they were sort of doing early seed rounds. They had Jason Bates as an advisor who was a co-founder of Neobanks of the UK, Monzo and Starling. So, again, they did have the right ingredients and Eric really got out there in the media and said some controversial things about you know banks sort of letting people down and wanting to set up the first mobile only Australian digital bank they started with prepaid cards which i suppose gave them some brand visibility in terms of getting a product out there and then they launched deposits after they got their license their biggest downfall and and, and this is probably the same for vault is that They went quite hard into the deposit products and there was a big delay or lag between when they launched deposits and when they launched loans. So in terms of that timing, they just didn't get the timing right or aligned.
0: Then came the COVID-19 pandemic. VC wallets snapped closed and customer acquisition dried up as Australians bunkered down under lockdown after lockdown. By 2022, Australia's neobank numbers had been cut to one. The first and most spectacular exit was Zinja, which handed back its banking licence in December 2020. Losses had risen from $6.5 million in 2018 to almost $22 million two years later in 2020. Its auditors bluntly said the neobank relied on constant injections of capital to meet its regulatory minimums, and had breached those minimums at least once. But the leadership at Zinja thought they had secured a lifeline. Desperate for capital, CEO Eric Wilson looked abroad for the money he needed. A deal brokered by a Byron Bay businessman netted a promise of $433 million from World Investments, an entity that looked after money for wealthy Saudi and Gulf families. The money never materialized, and World Investments later claimed despite evidence suggesting the contrary, that it had never agreed to spend any money on Zinja. The neobank wound up under the cloud of a criminal investigation into its capital-raising practices. Zinja's new management declined multiple opportunities to come on Breaking Banks Asia. The next exit was 86400. It was bought out by NAB in January 2021 for $220 million, while trying to complete a Series B funding round. Former staff recently told the media that they believe NAB took advantage at a time when neobanks were vulnerable. An exodus of unhappy staff from senior levels downwards and major problems during the migration process to NAB's own new bank, including customers being cut off from their funds for months and accounts being accidentally closed, has left 86400 a shell of its former self. The final exit was Vault in June 2022. It wasn't able to raise enough money to switch on its mortgage product, the engine that would allow it to pay for the high deposit rates it was paying customers. It was the neatest clean-up of all three, with the Neobank announcing its end in June and returning all of its depositors' money by the end of July.
1: I suppose they've left a hole in that sort of innovative, trying something different, you know, the new kids on the block sort of scene.
0: This is Joyce again. She says while those early Neos may be gone, their impact is certainly not forgotten.
1: Pretty much three of the big four now have a digital mortgage in the market. They probably weren't overly worried because in terms of Volt and Zinger, they're tiny, tiny compared to you know the big four. But in terms of posing a threat and, and sort of stamping on the competition, Um, It probably did bring forward some of the things they were working on, I think, in terms of really compelling customer propositions around digital mortgage and probably improving their apps as well and making sure that they weren't dropping the ball too much there.
0: And what about 86400? The brand and the tech is still around as part of NAB, but NAB is having real problems integrating it into their own digital brand, UBank.
1: So do you think this has been good for those customers? I wrote a story probably about six months ago about I think four or five senior people leaving, and you know you'd have to really wonder whether these sorts of cultures and innovation and whether they can be really be nimble and and doing things differently within that the confines of a big bank. I mean I know that NAB was really trying to keep it separate and to maintain that culture and and nimbleness, but uh, it, I think this is a bit of a a challenge.
0: Who are you watching now? Are there any neobank aspirants that are exciting you or is everyone just in survival mode?
1: Well, I think at the moment they're all focused on just surviving, Um, surviving this environment, not having to cut too many staff to sort of ride out the volatility and tougher investor sentiment at the moment. But I think there are some interesting models out there. Alex Bank, which focuses on personal loans. You've got Avenue, which is backed by Liberty, which is a non-bank player. um, And they do work in capital finance. But again, a lot of questions have to be asked about whether they've got the wherewithal to make it, whether they'll be able to attract enough customers, attract investors, have the commitment and the strategy to, um, to see it through. It sounds like you're much more sceptical these days. Yeah, I think you have to be, given what's happened. It's It certainly hasn't been easy for any of the players. I mean, Judo listed, if you look at its share price, although it's met its IPO prospectus targets and has grown its loan book in a really strong way, its shares are still trading, I think, below IPO price last time I checked. You know, it's a, it's a hard slog for any of these players and with what's happened and with what the sentiment's like globally, you'd have to think that it will be really challenging for anyone to get through the maze and, and come out the other side of success.
0: Many people like to use the word fail to describe what happened with the latest wave of NEOs, but Melison from APRA disagrees. She says the closures of Zinger and Vault
4: weren't failures at all, from a regulatory point of view anyway. One argument would be if we never had the failure of a new entrant, then we probably have set the bar too high. So we had our first wave of challenger banks demonstrate the full gamut of competitive outcomes. We had two orderly exits by Zinja and Volt. We had an acquisition merger with 86400 being bought by a major bank and merged into one of its brands. And we had Judo navigating a path through to IPO and ASX listing. But a failure from our perspective, a failure of the regulatory framework, would be one where the depositors lose money or where there's a disorderly exit that causes disruption. And we haven't had any failures in that sense. And it's not the job of the regulatory framework to succeed for the new entrants.
0: The pandemic could not have come at a worse time for these banks, in terms of fundraising in particular. But do you think Australia has enough funding anyway to support capital-hungry entities like new banks?
4: I don't agree with the premise that Australia doesn't have enough capital to sustain a viable challenger bank. The current macro environment is challenging and it may pose some challenges for banks in a high-growth phase in particular, but that is all part of the cycle. Challenger banks can and do source capital from overseas markets, so there's nothing limiting them to Australia. If it's at very high levels, they might need some additional regulatory approvals. But ultimately, it's not just the Australian capital markets. What killed this
0: neobanking wave was a cash crunch caused by the pandemic. But Joyce adds that had Zinger and Vault been a bit more strategic, not dilly-dallying, to use her words, and launched a lending product weeks or months after their deposit products, that could have changed the calculus for them. And then there is the question of whether APROL was expecting and therefore equipped to deal with the hundreds of applications it received as times to approval blew out. But at its core, Zinger and Volt, at least, were just not able to get around the rigid and simple rule of how banks make money. To get to the nub of the problem, let's bring in Xavier Rizos. He's now head of strategy at Palo IT, but co-founded Westpac Innovation Garage and has a long background in digital banking innovation. Xavier, this is your Margot Robbie in the bathtub moment. Why could they not outrun the big short?
3: There are two sides in banking. There are really two sides. There's deposits and there's lending. And to be super simplistic, a bank makes money by taking money from deposits or financial markets and lending the money. And the difference between the percentage or the rate they will take in their deposits and the rate at which they will lend is the spread. And that spread will make the margin for the bank. First parameter in Australia is because we are a low population country, only 25 million people, you don't attract a lot of deposits. Here in Australia, it's really hard. So the problem in Australia is there is actually no profitability. There is no money in deposit. So what happens is that fintechs and neobanks would build a beautiful app, which costs a lot of money, to attract a few thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars of deposit if they're lucky. But the moment the customer is ready to buy a, a house and wants to get a loan, what they do, those customers, is they go and, sh- and shop for the cheaper rates. And there is absolutely no loyalty uh, so you, as a new fintech, as a new neo bank, you've you've created this beautiful app on the on your, on the phone. You've you've spent so much money in the engineering and the product design to actually attract those customers. The moment they are about to become profitable by getting their home loans with you, first thing they do is that they look at the cheaper rate elsewhere and they go elsewhere.
0: They haven't solved the problem that people are facing, and that's obtaining a cheaper rate on their mortgage.
3: Correct. And then what you what you see is that. Alternatives that have so this this is what killed Zinja and uh, Vault is that they haven't had the time to scale fast enough uh, until the, the, the business cycle changed with this new inflationary um, uh, cycle and, and the, the rise of the interest rates. There is a legitimate question mark uh, on their ability to sustain. If you can't buy that product in the back end <laughs> at a cheap price, eventually uh, it's going to be a problem. <laughs>
0: If you love Breaking Banks Asia and are keen to nab a coveted sponsorship spot, listen in as my co-host and sponsorships manager, Simon Spencer, gives you the full rundown. Simon, tell us about who has been listening to the show.
2: Look, taking a look at the data coming back on the audience for Breaking Banks Asia, it's clear that we're getting the attention of some really interesting groups. Not unexpectedly, the first part of the season saw strong growth in Australia and also New Zealand. But interestingly, after we did the show on Open Banking in Asia, we started to really pick up an audience in Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore and India.
0: And what sort of people are listening to Breaking Banks or interacting with us over LinkedIn and Twitter?
2: Interestingly, it's a senior level audience with the largest group having titles that had the keywords senior, followed by directors, vice presidents, CXOs, managers and founders.
0: So how can sponsors get involved with Breaking Banks Asia?
2: They can send me an email to simon.spencer at gmail.com. They can ping me on LinkedIn at Simon Spencer. I'm that Simon Spencer that's also the CTO at AppScore.
0: Thanks, Simon. That's all we have time for now. So let's get back to the show. Today, from the wreckage, we have one neobank left standing, and that's Judo Bank. But a second wave has already begun. There's only one new full licensee so far, and that's Alex. don't call us a neobank, bank. It started out as a lender. The restricted license field is a little more crowded. There's small business lender, Avenue Bank, and it's aiming to be a full bank in 2023. Iron One Bank, which was expelled from the financial complaints watchdog in 2021 for not paying its membership, has managed to get its restricted license extended on the grounds of covid it plans to target Australia's Chinese population. Payments fintech Novati, which has long harboured dreams of becoming a bank, is on the cusp with its subsidiary, International Bank of Australia, securing a restricted permit in late 2022. Melizon says APRA has a pipeline of neobank aspirants in the queue. Furthermore, after Zinja's collapse, APRA tweaked its rules again. Today, restricted banking licensees must launch an income-generating asset product before graduating to a full license, and new banks must have an exit strategy before they run into trouble. But in the bright new world of banking as a service, is jumping through the regulatory hoops and scraping together the capital to qualify for a banking license necessary? Some say yes, because as many fintechs in Asia are finding, the margins from being a financial middleman are slim, and the money is in being a bank. But others say no. Simon Costello returned from years in Europe and Asia after that hot summer when APRA changed its rules on who could be a bank. Buoyed by his firsthand view of how Monzo and Co. had changed the turgid UK banking industry, he came home and was in the running for a banking license for his startup Frankie in those heady early days. But at some point in the journey, Simon and his co-founders realised the numbers just didn't work.
5: My name is Simon Costello. I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of Frankie One. Our company name then was called Frankie. It was amazing how difficult it was to build a digital bank, but also what we were amazingly surprised was the lack of FinTech infrastructure that was available. The list of third-party integrations was immense, and I'm just talking right now just about KYC and AML and fraud. But equally, if you wanted to connect into card processes, if you want to connect into the banking system, if you want to connect into what, as we now know, banking as a service wasn't uh, well-established, let's say. We ended up moving the business exclusively to focus on what I would call a module of a banking system. Obviously, now transitioned transition to Frankie One, we offer a single API into the global landscape of KYC, AML, and different fraud prevention tools.
0: You were on the cusp of getting a banking license. That was the whole point of Frankie, which at the time offered payment services. But you decided not to and became Frankie One instead. Was there a moment in the boardroom or when you and your co-founders were trying to nut out these problems when you realized this just isn't going to work?
5: I think it's always in the, it's creeping in the back of your mind. You know, it's always challenging as an entrepreneur. You get a lot of no's and that's totally normal, right? And any business or whatever you're going to do, because if the opportunity was obvious, they never want to do it. But then there's an element when you start looking, and I suppose for me anyway, it was actually looking at the unit economics of the business. And this is about five years ago. So late 2017, 2018. And what we're doing, we're looking at to connect, to get to market quickly. The best thing to use is use a prepaid card. That will give you speed, but unfortunately, it doesn't give you the cost efficiency. And so, what Azure was starting to calculate was wait a minute, every transaction will cost us something like 25 cents. Interchange in Australia, uniquely around the world, is actually capped. So, usually that's a revenue stream in, say, the UK, amongst others. They can actually recoup some of those funds. But in Australia, it's limited. So, we were losing around or forecast to lose around 20 cents every transaction. So if you think about a unit economics, usually the largest cost item in a, in a bank is actually its customer acquisition cost. And then we're looking at, okay, so we buy effectively, you pay money to get the customer, but then even when they do come on board, you actually lose money and you need to have capital requirements in addition to that, you're like, ooh. And in addition to that, you need to do all these different integrations. You need to make the tech stack work that hasn't been done uh, before. You're like, ooh. <laughs> And I suppose, you know, it's a combination of a number of different factors going, this looks extremely challenging. I suppose the other piece was, for ourselves, distribution is so critical for a bank. You really need to be, when any product I would argue that you're building, you need to be 10x better. You need to be materially different from an incumbent. And then I think the other factor is, in a B2C, leading with a uh, prepaid card or even a debit card, is actually leading with a liability product, not an asset product. And I think um, looking at the model, uh, that is not, uh, I don't think a recommended way of doing things. Investors like to see, yes, you've got attraction, you're starting to make a small amount of revenue and you can build from there. And so you can validate that and will help with capital raising. I was looking at the, the runway and having a look at the company and going, wow, I would need to raise significant amount of capital uh, at a minimum of $100 million.
0: Simon wasn't the only person to pass on the neobanking opportunity because he couldn't make the economics work. Ron Spector, the managing director of ANZ's venture fund, 1835i, told Breaking Banks Asia recently that while he wants neobanks in Australia to survive and thrive, he's had the opportunity to invest in all of them at one point, but didn't. His team could never make the numbers add up. He blamed the tiny population and cost of customer acquisition but also the heavy burden of regulation. So I asked Simon whether he thought APRA had made becoming a bank seem easier on paper than it was in reality.
5: I think they did a very good job of communicating, hey, look, there's a new opportunity uh, that comes about. I think when you start getting into the detail, you actually really appreciate how much work there is to get an ADI. And so I don't think they necessarily uh, misled uh, in any way. I think there's a combination of factors, I think they had over a hundred different applications at the time. And so they were getting inundated with applications, as you can appreciate their department doesn't scale like a startup. And also they don't particularly want to be reducing the level of quality on their side, and so things would take longer, things take longer than just increasing your burn, your runway, um, and so it has additional uh, knock-on effects.
0: The next wave of NEOs will be learning from their predecessors' experiences. Simon says this time he'd try to get to market as fast as possible, using the technology that now exists, like Frankie One, so they don't need to build all of their own software. He says the rise of banking as a service as a concept in Australia means fintechs do not immediately have to get a license to start playing. Peggy backing off someone else's means validating and proving the hypothesis behind your neobank idea and raising the capital before taking the plunge. Instead of buying customers expensively with high interest rates on deposits, he'd start as a non-bank lender.
5: I would be starting with with an asset product and then moving towards liabilities. Uh, In addition to uh, starting quickly, leveraging different technology, I'd also start raising capital and I would struggle for different proof points that you can actually validate to investors. And so you actually make money throughout the whole life cycle of the business, not a big bang approach. You'll be generating income, revenue flows, you'll have customer base. And hence, you'll have distribution as you start when to uh, add on different financial products. And so this is a uh, reduced risk approach, uh, enabling you to make money at every single product. It validates to different investors and obviously the organization itself that it can scale. But it, it is a longer way uh, to approach it. Uh, and I think at the time it was there was so much excitement and there's competition and everyone's trying to run hard that people were um, you know taking some big bats and some big swings, um, and I think we probably learned that that is not necessarily the the right approach.
0: So if acquiring customers first and sorting out your income second wasn't the right approach, who would you now point to? Who are the real neobank competitors?
5: companies such as Wise, you have know, companies such as Airwallex. Um, now, these aren't necessarily ADIs, they're actually positioning for a similar customer to act as a very, very similar activity. And so I think these players are actually starting to be a bit smarter, not needing to actually get the banking license, but offer the facilities and of what the consumers are asking for. And I think this is where Uh, the opportunity is going to be. It's not necessarily ADI versus ADI.
0: The 2018 wave of neobanks that APRA unleashed into Australia washed up, mostly drowned or bedraggled on the shore. Only Judo Bank, which opened with an asset that made money, came in unscathed. And yet the next wave of neos has already started. They'll have a harder time proving themselves to a sceptical public and press but it shows the initial big idea of breathing life back into banking competition in Australia is still burning. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia.
2: If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.